Larry Woodard, and this is Admire, where it's my privilege to have conversations with outstanding guests from business, sports, entertainment, and education. My guest today was introduced to computers at an early age, and as my grandmother would say, it hit and stuck. He went on to graduate summa cum laude from Harvard with a BA in applied mathematics. He worked at Oracle as a software engineer, rising to a VP position, and left to start a company called NetSuite, which sold to Oracle for close to $10 billion in 2016. My guest today is founder and executive vice president of Oracle NetSuite, Evan Goldberg. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As part of my research for this interview, I spoke to my younger brother, Dwayne. He's had a great career in IT and currently works at Equifax. He's on the post-breach team. He was introduced to programming by my dad, who went back to college uh, after a military career. He went into my dad's home office one day as a third grader and got introduced to binary addition and subtraction. He found it interesting, got a Tandy Color computer for Christmas, and was off to the races. At what age and how did you get introduced to math and computers? Yeah, well, I'm going to sort of age myself here, I guess. Um, you know, I was before. You know, got interested in computers before the personal computer era. Mm-hmm. Um, not too much before, um, and I, I I was you know doing pretty advanced math in my elementary school, and they were looking for some stuff to keep me interested. So they sent me over to the junior high school. Grew up in Boston. That's what we call middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a computer there. It was like a, a deck mini computer. Yep. Of, of the, a PDP something or other, and it was an old teletype machine. I mean, it was like ancient stuff. But I learned, uh, you know, I was, I was probably, I guess I was in sixth grade, and nobody was programming yet, but I learned, you know, kids aren't at all. I mean, um, but that, I was lucky enough to have that program, and just by myself, taught myself basic, and uh, and went from there. Got a, just a couple years later, was able to get my own computer, an Apple, an old Apple II, like one of the first generations of those and um, really took to it. Just loved the idea of being able to make something useful out of nothing. <laughs> those times were really interesting. I, I remember, um, you know, doing the punch cards in, in, in high school and then I got a TI-99, you know, and learned some basic stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly remember, you know, the heady days of getting a 1200 baud modem and waiting all night to download a font. You know, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Right. Look, I'm always curious about the road not taken. You you attend Harvard, you graduate near the top of the class in applied mathematics. What pulled you away from academia and what kept you from pursuing, you know, that common, um, you know, top graduate path, pursuing a graduate degree? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I mean, you know, in the family I was raised, getting degrees was, that was the goal. Uh, Something that could, you know, my dad used to always say, it's something they can't take away from you. And I guess that comes from, to some degree, you know, his first generation immigrant, um, you know, from Eastern Europe, Jew- uh, Jewish culture. And that, you know, that was one of the ways you could kind of assure yourself of success and a position was with something that, you know, was solid, a degree. So my dad always wanted to get as many degrees as possible. And in fact, I did have a um, brief uh, aborted stint at MIT, um, getting a, a PhD, going to the PhD program in AI. Now, I would have been about 30 years too early on that. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I, there was always that track that I could have gone to and almost did. I, I, I was, when I did move back from California, I was three years out of undergrad and I was back in Boston and I'd wake up every morning thinking I was in California and, and dreading the fact that I was, that was no longer true. So, um, 
basically Larry Ellison lured me back out of that fork in the road. But, you know, the other thing is I always sort of had those two tracks going because the minute I got my Apple II and I figured out how to program it and get into the machine language, I just loved it so much. And I always had programming jobs. I did a sort of, I guess you'd call it an internship when I was in high school over the summer to build a graphing program for math students uh, mm-hmm. for the calculus for the calculus and trig students to be able to use. And that, to me, uh, building something useful that people wanted, I, I don't know if it's a rush, but it's just incredibly satisfying. And so there was always that, that track of just wanting to build real software that real people use to make their life easier. And mm-hmm. so it was actually, I was, you know, doing well at Oracle and, and Larry said, can we get you back before the, uh, the first snow? Because it really was the case that I knew that um, that was ultimately uh, what I was looking to do. And, and so that, you know, that led to me leaving after a few years at Oracle when the internet took off um, to, to actually start my own company, which really had always been my dream is to have a company that builds great software. Yeah. So, and my next question was going to be, you know, why leave to start your own thing? But, uh, but, but I'm getting it. It's yeah. coming into clear, uh, clear picture here. It's, it's like out here in Silicon Valley, it's, it's kind of the dream. And, um, that, you know, I had a failure in between. You didn't mention that, but when I left Oracle, I did start another company for three years and it failed. So I really have a, quite a re- resume, um, for Silicon Valley dropped out of grad school, had a failed startup, you know, I've checked all those boxes. <laughs> really successful ones drop out of undergrad, but I wasn't yeah. that pressing. Yeah, it's really amazing to me because, um, you know, I was always entrepreneurial. And it amazed me that at my school, Syracuse, that that wasn't really the thing. And so I was starting, you know, things in college and afterwards, and it just seemed to me that that was always the goal. Um, and now people look back and they say, well, where did you get that from? But, but to me, it just seemed like that was a great path to, to try to do something where you were in charge of your own destiny. And, and also, you know, you were seeing something that maybe everybody else wasn't seeing. You know, you talk about, you know, the Internet um, coming up. So, so what were you seeing in the Internet in terms of, of opportunity and possibility? Well, I mean, for, for businesses, the, the level of connectedness you could have um, – seemed to me that there was, you know, just an enormous, enormous range of possibilities. And that kind of tectonic shift is usually when, you know, a big company may not necessarily adapt. And we've mm-hmm. seen some companies uh, adapt incredibly well to the internet and, and without naming names, some not. Um, but during, you know, regardless, there's going to be enormous opportunity when there's that kind of shift. And so, you know, knowing that I wanted to do it at some point anyway, it seemed the right, um, the right time uh, to try. You know, you can go really fast um, when you're doing a startup. And that's, and, and that's kind of when you're going really fast at those times when things are changing really fast has uh, a lot of advantages. So it really it was, it was, it was a timing, it was a timing issue. But as I said, I took one stab at it Um at something directly related to the internet, but really it was the second one that stuck. Right. Look, I've, um, I've been an entrepreneur uh, most of my life, uh, and I get an opportunity to speak at colleges and universities around the country. And I used to have a lecture that started with a book about Apple Computer. I'd put paper clips in it. It'd have like 10, 15, 20 paper clips in it, and I put a $50 bill on top of the book. 
and I'd say, tell me what the paper clips are. And it was amazing at that age, every kid would say, it's when he came up with the Lisa, it's when he came up with this computer, it's when he came up with this idea. It's, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. it was never the truth. The, the, the reality was it was when he found money. And if Apple didn't get an investment every 15 or 20 pages, you know, that was it. They were toast. Uh, so you didn't burn right. bridges, obviously, when you were at Oracle. And no, yeah, no. So, so how did you know to do that? And, 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 and you know, so that, that money piece is um, always the most fascinating piece to me. Yeah, well, I mean, the number one thing is I've always loved working with Larry Ellison. He's just an, an incredibly brilliant, magnetic, um, exciting person. And so that's appealing. You know, I don't, and, and I guess, I don't know, I I, I guess I kind of did a hybrid in some sense. You know, a lot of people left Oracle um, and started incredibly successful companies, obviously. And um, one of them in particular (laughs) said to me, you know, um, something about getting outside of Larry's umbrella or like, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, that, that force field or whatever it is, that magnetic field that amazing people and amazing entrepreneurs have. And I was always, you know, I kind of like, well, I don't need to get out. From, I don't necessarily want to get out from that umbrella because it's really good being under there when it rains. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that, you know, besides the fact that the idea for NetSuite, um, you know, I, I, I didn't burn bridges. I mean, you know, I developed a good friendship with Larry. And one of the things he said, I mean, I left for grad school and he got me back. And then um, I left to start. Uh, my first company, and he said, "Well, you've quit before, and hopefully you'll quit again." <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm out. I, there's an opportunity now that I'm back at Oracle to make that true. Though I think his current plan is for me to retire rather than quit. Um, but yeah, so I, that was really it. I mean, just he's an incredible mentor, and, and I, I love being involved with with him and and getting. Um, you know, just the, the benefit of his thoughts and his mind. And, and it paid off, really, in that the idea for NetSuite was a lot from him. Some, mm-hmm. A little bit, you know, some from me, but some from him. And it was a big change in direction um, from what I was doing. Uh, but we came up with it together in a five-minute phone conversation. And, um, it, you know, it became a great success. And it was that time was just the timing was great. Businesses were really just starting to look at how can the Internet um, have an impact. And, uh, we latched onto this idea of, well, your core operations, we can run them for you in the cloud. It wasn't called the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and you won't have to worry about running software anymore. You can focus on your business and you can access it anytime, anywhere. And so that was a great, it was great timing. Uh, I'm a big Larry Ellison fan, uh, and big Oracle fan at, at that. Um, so, this whole cloud computing thing happens and it's the future. Uh, and have you kept the process agile and, and does it help you continue to understand how things are going to change and what's coming? Well, we've, you know, NetSuite as part of Oracle has been kept, um, relatively sort of whole and, um, that's allowed us to maintain a lot of the culture. I mean, we, we, um, targeted different markets, and most of Oracle, at least in the past, is are you know really fast-growing businesses. They are growing from their startup phase sort of into 
mid-sized companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have our own unique approach for sort of a unique set of customers. Um, and we have 20,000 um, businesses uh, relying on NetSuite. Um, and so uh, th- th- that's, I guess, allowed us to remain agile and that we've sort of kept, I mean, we, from the day, day we started to the day we were sold to Oracle, it felt like a startup to me. I mean, things mm-hmm. slow down to some degree as you get bigger and you obviously have, when you have 10,000 customers versus 100, um, you can't quite do all the bobbing and weaving that you used to do, but it, ha- it still had that feel and it still does have that feel. You know, it certainly helps um, that it's really kind of just rejoining the family that I was already sort of an extended member right, of. Right. Larry came and talked up to our engineers a few months after um, we became part of Oracle and, and they, they came, you know, after the meeting, they said, boy, he really understands a lot about our business. I'm like, well, yeah, he started it with me. <laughs> <laughs> so that certainly helps keep us, um, you know, uh, focused and keeps the culture with that, you know, curiosity and drive that we had when we were independent. Right, right. Shifting gears a, a, a little bit, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're living through one of the most challenging times of our generation. Um, you, your 20,000 plus customers are, are largely, you know, medium and small businesses. How's NetSuite helping its customers through it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously every single business that I can think of that we help is um, needing to adapt. Right. And, you know, one of the things about NetSuite is it is a very adaptable system. I mean, we have some very, very cogent examples, you know, but I could go through our customer base and I'm sure they're, just, they're doing something to, to change, to adapt. And in and, and many, many cases, NetSuite is helping, but we have some, you know, obvious examples. Um, we have a large uh, nonprofit um, uh, business. Uh, NetSuite has been adapted to work really well, both for for-profit companies and not-for-profit companies. We have thousands of not-for-profit companies. One of them, as it turns out, um, is the CDC Foundation, mm-hmm. um, which is the philanthropic, the kind of official philanthropic uh, organization for the CDC. And they obviously, you know, had to ramp up a bunch of stuff really quickly. And so we got employees uh, to help them do that. So we're very focused on helping our businesses in our variety of ways. But in this case, we, ha- we already had an existing program, a pro bono program, where employees can help their nonprofits if they're passionate about use NetSuite more effectively. And it's a great win for everybody involved. The employees love it um, because they get to learn more about NetSuite. They see how it's used in real life situation for some engineers that's mm-hmm. a revelation and um they obviously get to help charities and not the profits that they believe in so this this program is going to overdrive now we're really focused on the nonprofits that are doing uh you know specific work for this um during this time and employees you know are it's a win for the employees it's a win for netsuite to be able to help these organizations and obviously it's a, hopefully it's a win for these organizations to be able to move quickly when they need to change. And, um, you know, same thing is on the, on the business front. Um, we're trying to really, first of all, just keep in touch with every customer and understand how we can help them. Mm-hmm. We're highlighting customers. Uh, we have an open for business campaign, highlighting how some of our customers are changing their business model, um, and adapting, um, to these uh, unique times, um, you know, using social media to get those messages out there. And also get the messages out to our um, 
to our employees. And finally, our employees themselves mm-hmm. are doing great work um, on their own, whether it's in their community. Um, and a lot of our job is to just support them, highlight the work that they're doing, give other employees ideas about what they can do. Um, you know, this is definitely really a time of everybody coming together. And there'll be plenty of time later. Um, to get back to, you know, the business as usual, which is trying to identify and help as many uh, businesses as we can. But definitely our focus right now is making sure our customers are um, successful, you know, in, in uh, navigating this complex and difficult um, time. It's unprecedented. Right. Thank, thank you for sharing that because, you know, they say the pressure makes diamonds. And, and I'm sure that there are going to be some gems that are created out of, out of all of this. Absolutely. You and I, um, and as a matter of fact, um, it's how we met, are both on the board of the V Foundation for Cancer Research. Um, uh, I've been affected right. by cancer through both my parents, my dad, who successfully battled prostate cancer before he was taken by lung cancer. You know, my younger sister, who died of ovarian cancer a few years ago, but was helped by gene therapy, and my mother, who's a 15-year breast cancer survivor. Your experience with can- cancer is personal as well. You have a nonprofit that focuses on BRCA research. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the organization, your role in that background? Well, yeah. So um, this is somewhat of a news item, <laughs> uh, is that, you know, I started the BRCA Foundation because my family is affected by the BRCA gene. Um, my uh, mother uh, battled uh, breast cancer twice successfully. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a hereditary condition that makes uh, especially women, um, but also men more uh, prone to cancer. So, you know, that is obviously personal. Uh, separately, my uh, wife's mother uh, successfully battled a really aggressive uh, ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, and there's other incidents of cancer in, in my family. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, really was focused on BRCA research. The BRCA gene is just one of many genes that predispose uh, people to cancer. They're discovering more about that every day. Right. And it's, it, it's changing how we look at cancer. Because the old way that's like over 100, you know, 100 plus, 150 years old of just looking at cancer from where it starts is still has use, um, but it's adapting. And the B Foundation um, has a unique understanding of this. Um, so because I was in deeply involved in the V Foundation and I also had uh, my foundation that I started, it turned out that the most success could be by combining forces. So now I've transitioned and we've transitioned to the BRCA initiative at the V Foundation, Beautiful. which is using the V, the incredible um, fundraising and grant making um, and scientific attributes to apply specifically uh, to cancers, uh, hereditary cancers, especially cancers, of the BRCA gene. But what we're learning from studying BRCA cancers is the drugs that treat them are also working for similar cancers that arise spontaneously. So it's a super exciting field. There's great experts on the V um, advisory board. In fact, one of the V scientific advisors was one of the advisors also on the, um, on my foundation. So really trying to do, uh, we've gotten, um, We've combined forces with another foundation on the East Coast, a great foundation that does absolutely incredible work. Um, they're just amazing. Also focused on um, DRCA or BRCA. So it's really all about sort of making one plus one equal three or one plus one plus one equal ten. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, it's incredibly exciting for me. As it turns out, um, Jimmy V himself, 
was very likely affected by the BRCA gene. So mm-hmm. when I learned that, which was after I'd started the BRCA Foundation, like my, my head exploded. And um, I realized that if I had known that then, I would have immediately just focused on getting um, a, a particular initiative going into the foundation. And so um, it's great, but it's great that I've been able to retroactively uh, do that. I think, you know, combining forces, and it's something that I think we're going to see come out of this time that sometimes you can do better when you combine forces. You don't necessarily need everybody going after the same target. I mean, it's useful to have different approaches, but I think there's a lot of opportunity um, to collaborate and work together more, and I'm hoping that's something, as you said, that is a diamond that comes out of the pressure of this. So, um, again, I'm, you, know, you and I both are huge fans of the V Foundation, and um, I just, it is so, you know, everybody ultimately um, gets touched by cancer in one way or another. And so the energy, I try to put equal energy into that as I do, obviously, into my, into my day job. Yeah, and this is a fascinating and, and really great news. I'm, I'm sitting here with goosebumps. It's, it's great. You know, in addition to that, you know, um, I know that um, the Susan Braun, you know, our executive director, and I spoke with the Tiger Woods Foundation, you know, last year because he's got uh-huh. this emphasis on math and science. And the idea, you know, that, that, that I had was, you know, listening to the Scientific Advisory Board talking about how we need more mathematicians, we need more doctors who know math, right? And that's going to be a big part of the future. So the idea was, well, what, could we do these endowed scholarships so that we could get kids to study math, you know, on their, on their medicine path? And uh, so, so, so far. Interesting. Yeah, math and statistics, data yeah. science. Yeah, I mean they got every they've got to be a, a practically a data scientist these days because they're getting so much data. I mean, it, and this time, I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of data data that's being generated about COVID, and um, I that's I think is a super cool concept um, that they come out really conversant. They don't necessarily have to be a practitioner mm-hmm. of the data science skills, but conversant with it in a way that um, they know what can be done and then they can pull onto their team as they become, as they move through their career, you know, they eventually become sort of team leaders, be able to pull some of the experts into their teams to make, you know, faster progress. Absolutely. So, so we've talked about, um, you know, what you're doing, uh, you know, with, uh, with your time uh, through both your, your, your job and, uh, and the foundation uh, but I know you have a family and you're dealing with the same social distancing protocols that we all are. How are you coping? And uh, right. what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Yeah, well, I mean, every family is different. Um, I have two um, girls home from young ladies home from college, young women home from college, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, secretly loving. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, preferred to be under different circumstances, but we're getting to do things as a family that we probably never would have done. We have, we have a mandatory, what we call a mandatory family friendly happy hour, not involving drinks, but mm-hmm. often we do, you know, come dinner time or pre dinner time, we'll, we'll do a puzzle or we'll watch some family videos or we'll get in the hot tub because <laughs> we're in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, you know, been just trying to keep it difference and it's funny because each day sometimes can feel like it goes you know really fast but then you realize that in some ways it feels like it was a week and a half so um 
it's it's a really bizarre time, and we're just trying to put some layer some fun on top of it. Um, mostly, you know, the kids are they're going to school and they're doing the schoolwork, and I'm on Zoom all day, and, and Susie's running her business still. And um, but uh, part of it is 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 just being cohesive, and and you know they're not getting to see friends, and that's tough. I totally, I mean, I can't imagine going months without seeing my friends from when I was a kid. Um, and so that's definitely a huge uh, challenge that, you know, we try to meet with a, a bit of fun and, um, and, and, you know, just get back and then get back to it. Absolutely. I think the creativity is what's necessary. It's funny, late last night I was just, um, you know, sitting in a chair, not wanting to go to bed necessarily. And I thought about the fact that me and many of my cousins have written books. So I started like a cousin book club where everybody should read each other's books and uh, and posted that this morning and everybody was really excited about it. But just all that family time that you just neglect when you're when you know, when you're out there trying to. Uh, right. You know. Yeah. No, we're getting we're getting our we're getting our fill for sure. I mean, my son, since the girls went to college, he's in high school. Mm-hmm just would count down the days till they came home. Absolutely. It's so cute. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, you know, I mean, he, he's, lo- he's loving that part, that part of it. So you got to find the positives in what is a very serious and difficult, uh, time. I mean, we're lucky, uh, to be together, to be in an area of the country where social distancing has taken hold, you know, it was taken hold very, very early and very, very solidly. And mm-hmm. We're very fortunate. Uh, to have that situation. I know it's not the same for others. I have very close family in New York um, and they're dealing with their quite difficult, really scary circumstances. Right, so right. Um, I really feel for them. But again, you, you try to take the, as just like you said, create some diamonds from the pressure. Absolutely. Maybe we'll have mandatory happy hours when they're home forever. <laughs> Which would be great. Uh, so uh, this is uh, Admire. My guest has been Evan Goldberg. Um, look, thanks, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. Thanks a lot for having me. 